welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And today we're going to hear from Dr. David Simmons. I think you're going to really like this one. He has a lot to share with us regarding interpreting the Horde and really seeing what it means. And of course, pointing out all the mysteries of the Horde, of which there are quite a lot. He's also going to share with us a few aspects of the craftsmanship involved in it. It's all really interesting stuff. I learned a hell of a lot while listening to him, and I hope you do too. All right, let's get going. I'm Dr. David Simmons. I'm now the Curator of Antiquities and Numismatics here in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. Basically, numismatics and archaeology translates as coins and old stuff. So treasures and coins and yep. things like that. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's essentially I look after stuff from the ancient Mediterranean cultures like Cyprus, Greece, Rome, and I do the archaeology of Britain from the Roman period to the end of the Middle Ages, look after all of the coin collections and met coins, medals, tokens, which again is ancient Greece through to the 20th century. So how did you get involved in the Staffordshire Horde project? Well, I'm really involved because I look after the collection from the Saxon period here in, in the museum. The chap called Duncan Slark, who was the person who actually was sort of first in touch with the metal detectorist over the Horde, said to me, there's a big find's been made. Um, it's got some, some lots of Anglo-Saxon metalwork in. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine, tell me about it later. So he did tell me about it later and showed me some of it. And at that point, life changed. Since then, really, I've been doing nothing but the hoard. Did you first hear about it while it was still secret in a covert dig? Oh, absolutely. I think it's fair to say there were probably about eight or ten of us here in the museum who knew the full story of what was going on for two months after the hoard was discovered. It was very mysterious. You'd be wandering around and seeing each other in corridors and talking about that find or it. People, I think, were getting suspicious. This has captured a lot of attention around the world. It's, it's been an enormous find. So can you give us a brief explanation of what the hoard is, how rare it is, and why it's so important? Well, the hoard is incredibly rare. I mean, there is nothing like this find. So there's absolutely nothing to compare it to in, in terms of what the hoard is. I mean, that's one of the problems we face. What we've identified so far is primarily items of war gear, or they're, they're things that seem to be from items of war gear. So, for example, we have bits from the handles of over 90 swords. What we don't have are the sword blades. We have something that we think may have been a decoration from a shield, but we don't have any of the rest of the shield. We have pieces of decorated silver foil and other elements that I'm pretty certain come from an Anglo-Saxon decorated helmet, but of course we don't have any of the iron substructure of the helmet. So we've got lots of stuff which seems to connect with warfare. We have a lot of other pieces that at the moment we, we really don't know what they are. You're always a bit loath to say, oh, the hoard is definitely this, this or this, because we do have these unidentified pieces, but there's certainly nothing identifiable in the way of dress fittings or female jewellery or any of that kind of material. So... It looks as if it's a very masculine find, and it looks as if it's got a strong connection with military gear in some way or other. We're generally lacking other things that you expect to see with military gear, like buckles and things like that. Do you have any idea of why that might be? Um, well, that's one of the $64,000 questions. It's very clear that what we are not looking at is the result of a battle, um, somebody going over the battlefield and picking up all the gold and silver stuff that they can find, because, as, as you say, we're missing things. You know, we've got over 90 sword handles represented, at a push, I could maybe say that we've got material that suggests about six sword scabbards. I, for one, find it really hard to believe that 80 or more men who had gold-hilted swords didn't have decorated scabbards that they kept those swords in. We don't have the, the elaborate belt buckles or belt fittings that you would expect to see. So there has clearly been a selection gone on of what has ended up in the find. As I always say to people, it's when you start drilling down into these questions that your brain begins to hurt, because every, every time you, you look at a question and think, OK, maybe that's an answer to it, you suddenly realise you've posed yourself two more questions. Because who's made that selection? Why? Does the selection have anything to do with the time the hoard is deposited, or is it made before the hoard is deposited? All we can really say about this stuff is that it's buried together when the hoard is buried, but we don't, for example, know that it belonged together when it was above ground. It's possible somebody's grabbed all the gold and silver they could lay their hands on from disparate places, stuffed it all together and then buried it as one go. But it may not have really had any connections with each other above ground. You start getting into horribly deep questions. 
the find was spread out across a field that mm-hmm. had been plowed about eight months prior. Is yeah, that correct? It's, I think so, yeah. And because it had been plowed earlier, and, and the county archaeologist mentioned that there was an oval-shaped mound that had been leveled by the landowner, mm-hmm. is there any way that at this point we can look at the ground and determine how this board was buried, whether it was kept in a bag, in a box, whether it was put under the mound or anywhere else this this is one of the things that they'll be looking at as they do the pulling together of information for the research program which is now seriously going they are going to be looking at all the evidence that came from the excavation for exactly what piece came from where on in that field and trying to see if we can match pieces together so if you've got half of something there and half of something five meters away it tells you something about how that stuff may have been spread and how it may originally have been put in the ground. So there's a lot of work still to be done on that question. The mound is is a slightly tricky one because it does look as if there was some sort of mound there, but it's very hard to be sure about what it was. What we do know is that there is a lens of clay in the area where the hoard was discovered, and that lens of clay seems to be a naturally glacially deposited lens of clay. So we don't think it's it's anything man-made, we think it's just there. I think what we're looking at is a very sandy soiled field with an area that was very clay. And sandy soil doesn't retain water, clay does. I think you have differential water retention at this spot, which promotes different vegetation. So I think we're probably looking at a situation where there was a clump of something distinctive on the edge of the hill overlooking the road that people were still using as a main routeway. And I think that's why the hoard is where it is. Sort of like X marks a spot. Yeah, essentially. If you're going along the road and you see there's a clump of particular type of bush that doesn't occur along the rest of that hill slope, it's a good obvious spot to try and put stuff, thinking I'm going to come back to that, that's what I'll look for. That could be wrong. I know other archaeologists will, will disagree with me. So it's, I mean, like most things with this hoard, it's, there are multiple answers to most of these questions. So you mentioned that the clay retains water mm. better than the sandy soil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could that account for why we're not seeing blades and why we're not seeing leather and things like that? No, it's certainly not the blades. I mean, it's quite clear they were never there. You would have had, I think, evidence of the rusting, even, even if the, the swords had rusted away. And there, there is just nothing there at all. In some instances, there, we're, we're getting rust traces and rust remains on pieces or associated with pieces, you know, where there were obviously small bits of iron there. But the soil's hard on iron metalwork, but it wouldn't have destroyed everything. What we're clearly looking at is stuff that's been taken off swords rather than swords being deposited there. And I think the sword blades have gone off and been reused. I mean, they've probably put new, new handles on them and set them back to their primary purpose of killing people. <laughs> Well, if they were intentionally pulled off, it raises some interesting cultural questions for the time. We know that Mercia had recently been very warlike under mm-hmm. King Penda. Yeah. And from the dating, it looks like this was after Penda's reign, mm-hmm. correct? It, it, well, that's the current dating. I, I think I think all of us would say don't put too much faith on, abs- on any da- absolute dates that are being put forward at the moment because there's still a lot of stuff to clean And there's still a lot of analysis to do. So the date might move a little bit either way. But certainly, you know, we're talking later 7th century. I mean, that's pretty certain for most people. So it's likely to be after Penda. So with that in mind, I recall reading about how uh, King Oswiu tried to bribe Penda to avoid Mm. battle. Yeah. And that didn't work out for him. Not terribly Um, well, no. (laughs) But given what we hear about with the wealth in Beowulf, and then we hear about these attempted bribes, Mm. and then we have this hoard of gold clearly pulled off of fine weaponry, Mm. possibly a hoard that was intended for some sort of payment issue or bribe issue. Is that one of the theories that people are looking at? That's that's one idea that's that's doing the rounds, certainly. Um, I mean, the trouble is we're... I mean, again, the the best parallel I I tend to use with this hoard is that if you can imagine that somebody's gone out, bought 100 jigsaw puzzles, burnt the box lids, burnt about 80% of the pieces shoved everything else in one big bag, given it a big shake, and then they've given it to us and said, there you are, understand that. So we're not sure, we're not sure how, which pieces go together yet. We're not sure what, when they do go together, they may mean, which makes trying to understand what the hoard means quite tricky. We're still at that stage where there are lots of ideas, all of which could conceivably be right. So yes, there's, there's one suggestion that it's a payment of some kind like that. There's another suggestion that it represents a share of loot, you know, I was saying that there seems to have been a division. Well, maybe maybe one person had the right to have the sword handles in, as their share. There's no solid evidence for that, but you know, if we're speculating, we, we should you know keep our, our options open. 
Is it stuff that's been looted from a Mercian settlement by somebody who's come in? Is it something that they that Mercian settlement has, has gathered together to hide from somebody who might loot it? Two other suggestions, I mean, that I, I think are quite interesting ones are: Are we looking at a trophy collection? If you, if you look in Beowulf, one of the warriors, uh, Ongenthio, is killed, and his killer, amongst other things, strips his sword hilt. So, are we looking at having taken the sword hilts of a number of leading warriors? Another possibility that Professor Nicholas Brooks in particular has suggested is possibly we're looking at a stock that belonged to a royal armourer. Or it seems to have been quite common if a warrior joined a king's personal war band. So these are the guys who would stay with him in his hall, who would eat at feasts with him, would stand and fight around him in battle. If a warrior joins that group, then one of the things the king may well do is give him arms, give him very rich royal gifts, which could include a sword. When that warrior left the king's employment or he was killed, um, you know, it, that weapon might, may come back to the king so that it can be reworked and handed on to another warrior. So you know, maybe that's, that's one way of going around it. And that ties in with, an, with another suggestion, which is what we're seeing here are weapons being depersonalised. Because again, if, you know, if, they, if all your warriors troop into your mead hall to have a feast... One thing they do is they leave their swords by the door. You don't want drunk warriors equipped with swords. It's, it's so, so there's a stack of swords. And the way people would recognise each other's swords probably is by their sword handles. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll take one look and, oh, that's Wolfric's sword, that's Godwinner's sword. So by taking that sword, stripping off the recognisable hilt and putting a new hilt on it, you make it a new sword, effectively, to give to someone else. So is that why there's been this sort of accumulation of stuff, which for some reason then gets buried? And as I say, any or all of those may be right, or any of all of those may be completely wrong. So while we're talking about various theories of this find and the circumstances of the burial, it was located fairly near Watling Street, right? It was, yeah. And Watling Street, while it probably wasn't maintained, mm. since the Anglo-Saxons weren't interested in maintaining no. Roman architectural works, it still would have been used. Oh, though. clearly, yes. I mean, it's a major road. It carries on being a major road into the medieval period without being overwildly maintained. You know, the Romans did a good job in the first place. I mean, it's a very clear route way through. With the dig, we didn't find any Roman pottery, and we didn't find really any medieval, or, or no. with the exception of, I think it was a Victorian piece, mm. any post-medieval stuff. No. I mean, the thing is, I think that what you're looking at an area that isn't anything special, and it's quite clear that it's an area in between, if I can put it that way. To one side you have a valley of the, the River Tame, and on the other side is a valley of the River Penk. And you, you, we know there are these two Saxon groups, the Penkseiter and the Tomseiter, and the area where the horde is coming from seems to be very much a kind of in-between land between those two groupings. There is nothing really there way into the, sort of in, into the 17th century. It's still being described as a kind of dangerous place where highwaymen hang out. One of the comments that was made quite early on is, is it, uh, how astonishing it was that this horde might, must have survived centuries of ploughing. Well, it didn't. I mean, this place wasn't a field until the 1830s. It's a scrubby, wild, woodland, heathy kind of place that just you know, wasn't anything in particular. It's the, it's the wild is the best way to describe it, I think. Well, let's try and put a, a little bit into perspective what we found. A lot of people have been comparing it to Sutton Who. So uh, could you explain how this find compares with Sutton Who, or if it does? Right. It's, um, it complements Sutton Who rather than compares to it directly. When the Horde was discovered, I mean, a lot of the press were, were angling for the is this better than Sutton Who. It's as important as Sutton Who in its way. Sutton Who is an astonishing assemblage buried to accompany somebody into the afterlife, some, some very rich and important individual you know, who, who may or may not be King Redwell of East Anglia. I think there's, there's at least a good chance it's a royal burial, let's put it that way. So, so there's an assemblage of stuff at one particular instance buried to accompany this one individual. What we get in the hoard is we don't have as many astonishing single pieces as there are in Sutton Hoo. I mean, Sutton Hoo, you have got in, individually some uh, some amazing things like the, the Byzantine silver bowls and the, the evidence of the hanging bowl and some of the clothing fittings and so on that, that were in Sutton Hoo. But on the other hand, Sutton Hoo, if, if it is Red Wild, he's buried with one sword. In Staffordshire Horde, we have, as I said, evidence for over 90 swords represented the Staffordshire Horde has added 60, that's 60% to the total of known Anglo-Saxon gold filigree. 
So everything we thought we knew about gold filigree in the 7th century is out the window and we've got to start again. While the Staffordshire Hoard, I mean, the Staffordshire Hoard does have some amazing pieces in. I mean, you know, don't let me give the impression it doesn't. What it doesn't have is as many pieces with the Sutton, Sutton Who Wow factor at, the, at this stage. I mean, you know, give us time, let's get the cleaning done, let's see what we can put back together. But what we do have in the Staffordshire Hoard is an amazing depth of material. You know, we are, we are now able to start looking at types of object in much more quantity than we had before in a wider range of styles and decorations than we've ever had before. People always always say, I mean, it sounds crazy when I say this, but we're actually lucky with the Staffordshire Hoard because a lot of it's broken. When you have Sutton Who, the last thing you do is start taking apart the most amazing gold and garnet work to see how it's made. With the Staffordshire Hoard, we don't have to because the Saxons broke a lot of it when they were sort of taking it off other things. And we can see inside it, we can see manufacturing techniques, we can take samples from the, the paste and so on they're using in, in their manufacture. You know, we, we can look at all sorts of details that we can't in Sutton Who. So there is hope that it will help, help us with a lot with understanding the technology of what's going on with this stuff. So in some ways it's not that Sutton Who and the Staffordshire Hoard are the same thing or one's better than the other. They complement each other beautifully. They fit very nicely together to, give, to help give us two different insights into the period. When you mentioned the breaking of the objects, that was something that really struck me when I was looking at the hoard, is how many of the objects were broken, and specifically the fact that Christian iconography was being broken. Mm-hmm. And this was right in the period where Christianity was truly spreading in Anglo-Saxon England. Mm-hmm. So do we have any thoughts on why that might have happened? Oh, we have lots of thoughts. What we don't have is any knowledge. <laughs> the, uh, when the hoard first appeared, I mean, I think the immediate reaction was, ah, pender, pagans, you know, they broke, broken and bent Christian pieces. And then as the dating started to move a little bit, I think we all sort of reined back in and thought, well, if you think about it, if you're a Christian and you're going to recycle the gold from a cross, it stops being an important Christian relic. It's a piece of gold, so you're quite likely to fold it up and because it takes less room, it's easier to fit in a bag if it's folded up. Or it, so You can understand why things might have happened. What's a trickier thing to understand is when those pieces were actually mutilated like that. Because if, if, let's say, this hoard is 670, it's after Pender, it's 15 years after he's dead. But if that stuff, if this is, let's say, a royal treasury... If that stuff had been added to the Royal Treasury 20 or 25 years earlier, it might have come from Pender's time. So it's really difficult to be absolutely precise with what's going on with these. But you can say it's, it's perfectly acceptable for Christians to have, made, have damaged those pieces in that way. The stuff is being recycled. It is just gold. One of the pieces I looked at when I was at the Pottery's Museum was that enigmatic strip that we think comes off of yeah. uh, the cross, and it's written on both sides. One of the things that was pointed out to me while I was at the Pottery's Museum is that there's spelling errors in that. What's the current thinking of why there would be spelling errors on, on a sacred cross like it, that? It wasn't that uncommon, in certainly in the 7th century stuff. I mean, you'll find it in manuscripts as well that there are, there are spelling mistakes in the Latin. It's tricky. I mean, it's not the language you use yourself. So it's not unparalleled, I think, would be the thing to say. I mean, it's very encouraging if you, have, if you had to do Latin at school to know that they were getting it wrong as well. <laughs> but it's, um, I mean, again, you come back to the problem of we don't know who did it, you know, or how it was sorted out. I mean, did, did a churchman inscribe it himself or did a churchman stand there and spell it out for somebody and somebody scratched it on? I mean, it doesn't look terribly professionally done, so I, I'm... I mean, my inkling would be it's probably as a churchman who's put it on there. But the intriguing one is why why twice? Why on the two different sides? We actually took some of the pieces of the hoard to Paris, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to later on, but one of the pieces we took over was this, this inscribed piece, and they were able, by, by dint of some very clever oblique photography and computer playing around, to unfold the cross inscription so we could read and see what's inside. And it is basically the same inscription, laid out rather differently so it doesn't fill the whole space. And then at the end of it, in another hand, is scratched much more finely. What we think, or the suggestion certainly is, is that it's saying something like, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, protect us. It's it heavily abbreviated, but that seems to be the general gist of it which I'm told is the kind of common thing that would follow a prayer at this period. So it doesn't look as if somebody's setting the, setting the inscription out on two sides so that you could use either side. I mean, one side does look much 
much more tatty than the other side and it looks then as if they've done it properly on the second side. Again, you get into arguments here because there, there are some archaeological colleagues who argue that the, having it on two sides doubles the power of the inscription. You know, so you're doubling the power of that, that religious protection. And then you get into what is it? And you know, Is it from a cross? Don't know. Could it, could it be from a, a shrine or a reliquary? Exactly the kind of thing that we know might be carried into battle to encourage the troops if you're a newly Christian king, in the same way that the larger cross may have been. We know that religious items would go into battle with religious people using them because you're trying to get the power of your new god on your side there's one battle i think it's near bangor where supposedly 800 welsh monks assembled and prayed along with the british army only to get massacred after the battle because they lost and there's a there's an very famous irish piece and people have to forgive me here because i'm dredging this one from memory but i think it's called the cathach of saint columba which is a, a book box, a book shrine, which went on being used and being carried by one Irish tribe into battle into the 17th century. I mean, it's, it's survived in use for nearly a thousand years as a tribal or a clan protective symbol. So the idea is, is perfectly, perfectly credible that the Christian pieces could have a military context as well. The book reminds me of something that both Kathy and Deb mentioned to me with the eyes, yeah. uh, that those might appear on one of the Gospels or, or the Bible uh, for a book at that time. Yeah. Really well, it's one, one of the possibilities for the folded cross is that when, when it's unfolded, it does look quite convincing for the right sort of size to fit onto the front of a Gospel book. I mean, again, you know, we have the problem that since it's all been taken off its original context, we're not sure, but a Gospel book looks like a possibility. And then we, we have these strange fittings. Part of the problem is that because not everything's cleaned yet, we're not absolutely sure which bits make up suites of related material. So we're sort of looking at bits that we think belong together at the moment and trying to make some sense of them. And there may be other bits that we need to bring into the equation later on. So it's any ideas at this stage are tentative. The thing that, that gives me slight pause for thought are they are related to the two golden garnet eyes or lentoids or whatever we want to call them. There are two other pieces that I've always thought of as cat's ears. <laughs> they're, they're very very strange shaped things but with a little pointed top. And there are a pair of those as well as the, as the fact there are a pair of eyes. If you lay them out, I mean, you, you get a very convincing kind of cat mask starting to take shape. Now, that doesn't seem wildly appropriate for the front of a gospel book, but that's if they belong in that way. I mean, maybe if you turn these ears in a different way, you're looking at a different shape. So, you know, we, we are so early in the stages of doing this that I think they're possibilities, but we need to make sure that we keep aware of the fact that they may be the wrong possibilities. So you mentioned that we're dealing with thousands of pieces here, but you might only be dealing with several hundred actual objects. How do we go about figuring out which pieces fit with other pieces and what that object is going to be? I think there'll be a number of ways of doing this. One example I can give you already is purely by chance. A colleague who used to work in the British Museum visited and was looking at some of the stuff with me and just commented on the fact that there was, a, there was a shadow on one piece where something else had sat against it, and you, you could actually see the outline clearly reflected. Two minutes earlier, serendipity, I'd been holding in my hand something that fitted perfectly into that shadow, and that sort of started the ball rolling, and, and with a bit more looking and a bit more work, we came up with a truly incredible handle for a, a sax. And that knife wouldn't have looked out of place at Sutton Hoo. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing thing. There's three ounces of gold in that one knife handle, and it's got some of the finest garnet work in the hoard. That's exceptional. I mean, a lot of the other stuff, it's recognising patterns in the garnet work and thinking they must belong. So even if they don't actually join, you can tell that they look as if they're a suite of material. So we'll be doing all that sort of thing. Ultimately, I suspect for some pieces, we will be trying things like computer scanning and then just letting a computer program try and put the stuff back together. But we'll try anything that works. And if we can, if we can see it simply and quickly, then we'll do it that way. What exactly would a gold or silver foil panel look like and what do you think it would be used for? If people know the reproduction of the Sutton Who helmet, I mean, it's a very famous image. If you could hold in your mind that picture, you'll, you'll know there are little decorated oblongs with figure decoration or with foliage decoration on. That's the kind of thing we're thinking about. So, you know, maybe something that's two inches by three inches or less. And they'd be little sheets of, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have any gold. We have some silver. We have some gilt silver. But they'd be little sheets of metal especially impressed with a design that's 
punched in with a, with a stamp or a die of some kind. Basically, you can mass-produce panels like this. So you can, I mean, on Sutton Hoo, for example, the, the reconstruction, if you look at it, you'll see that there are at least two panels which are reproduced twice in the, in the decoration. So by using these punches, making these little silver foil sheets, you're producing decorative panels that can be used on things like the helmet. Um, we also f probably find them, or probably originally we're finding them on things like scabbards. There are similar foils known from around the mouths of drinking vessels, wooden drinking vessels, and, and you know there are probably other uses. The, the thing that really clinches it for me that we've got foils from a helmet in the Staffordshire Horde is if you again if you look at that Sutton Hoo helmet. You'll notice that a lot of these foils are held are sort of held in place, or they're bordered by little strips of silver that have got longitudinal ribs in them. And in some places, you've got bits of that ribbing bent double and then riveted in place around the edges. Mm. And we've got exactly as a meter and a half worth of silver strip with ribs in from the hoard, and we've got a number of those bent over pieces that are riveted. So they look exactly like the pieces that were found at Sutton Hoo that go to make up the helmet. The intriguing thing, and the one that I love using, um, I'm afraid, is that the Sutton Hoo helmet reproduction looks magnificent because they've copied the original materials. If you see the original Sutton Hoo helmet, you, you see this sort of brown, dingy thing. The reason the reproduction looks brilliant is because the original was made out of tinned bronze sheets covering the, the iron helmet frame. If that is the helmet that belonged to King Redwald of the East Angles, who does the helmet in the, silver, in the Staffordshire Horde belong to that's covered in silver plate? Right. So, an intriguing one there. <laughs> Especially since it's significantly larger as far as number of swords than, mm. than Redwell. Yeah. Well, we mentioned Penda earlier. We know that Penda defeats and kills in battle two kings of East Anglia and two kings of Northumbria. So, in terms of the warfare that's going on in the middle years of the 600s, there's no shortage of dead kings around for, to provide you know, context for stuff in the Staffordshire Horde, if, that, if that's where, where the stuff is coming from. Now, with regard to the, the potential of a helmet, obviously we don't have anything that's shaped like a helmet. This would just be the foil. So would this be something that somebody would have stripped off? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the sword handles have been taken off the iron pieces, and the iron pieces are not in the hoard. I think w if we were looking at a helmet, we're looking at stuff that's been stripped off the iron substructure. Obviously, if you want a helmet, you want a nice iron helmet, and the rest of it, it's sort of you know decoration added to the outside. And I think what we see here in the hoard is the decoration taken off the outside, which helps explain why it's smashed up so much. You know, it's not come off as neat panels. It got bashed up. It's thin foil. If it was thrown into a bag with all the rest of it and carried around, it would get broken up, which is exactly what we see. But it seems like many of these items have been used. I was looking at the pommels that they had over the Potteries Museum, and the tops had been rubbed quite a bit, it seemed like. They'd yeah. been smooth. It's, it's one of the intriguing things, is when, when you look at that, I, th I think it surprised us all, was almost universally that's where the wear is on the pommel caps. It's quite obvious you've had people either standing around resting their hand on top of their sword, or they've just been holding the top of their sword handle to hold the sword steady as they walk along. So, so that the thing isn't flapping around by their leg. But it does conjure up this vision of, you know, serried ranks of Anglo-Saxon top elite warriors all standing around posing with their hand on their sword, looking important. <laughs> Actually, holding the sword raises another object that we found, those, those pyramids. Yep. There was some discussion that they might have been used largely in the same way that... Uh, the Vikings used peace bands. Can yep. you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, it's the. I, th I think it's a very likely idea. I mean, a pair of these were found at Sutton Hoo, and they were found lying beside the sword's scabbard. And if you look at the underside of these pyramids, it's rather like a belt buckle. There's, there's a, the pyramid itself is hollow with a bar across, just like the bar on a belt. And clearly something is threaded onto them. I mean, you, you thread some leather or you thread a cloth strap into the pyramid and then pull it back out on the other side and, you, and that pyramid is then hanging from that strap. And if it's associated with the scabbard, as it clearly seems to be, then I think this idea of them being peace bands is a very likely idea. What you get in these Viking saga descriptions are, again, leather or cloth bands that are attached to the scabbard and are then used to tie around the handle of the sword. So you're holding the sword in its place in the scabbard. So, so number one, the sword can't fall out. Um, but number two is you can't, if you get angry, just pull your sword and do something you might regret later, hence the name Peace Bands. You actually have to stop and physically untie the band before you can draw your sword. So it's, it sort of stops any hot-headed violence. 
there are Viking saga stories where these things feature prominently for one reason or another. In Beowulf, there was the friend who was portrayed as a good man, a good moral man, because mm. when he got drunk, he didn't slay his friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this must be something that, that happened. Well, I think it gives you a good idea about what that society is like. I mean, you know, the people who are using the kit of this quality are, I mean, it's Kevin Leahy. He came up with the memorable phrase that, that what you see here are the psychopathic peacocks around the king. And I can't think of a better description. I mean, these these are the serious professional killers who the king wants on his side, close to him, as his personal warrior band. So he rewards them. They're the people who have all this kit. The fact they have all this kit immediately says, I am a high-status, serious warrior. And it expresses their status. It expresses how dangerous they are. So... It's the second you see somebody with this kit, you you know who you're dealing with. Could that account for why garnet is featured so prominently in these decorations? Oh, I wish I knew why. Everybody asks this question. I mean, the simplest answer to me is it looks good, especially because of the manufacturing trick they do. That virtually all the garnets that are used for the cloisonné decoration are ground down to about a millimetre thick, so they're, they're very thin pieces. And behind them, in the cloisonné cell, you will have a paste which is holding everything up. And then there's a a little piece of stamped gold foil directly behind the garnet. And what you're essentially looking at, it's a bicycle reflector. So essentially the light hits the garnet, goes through, hits the foil, which acts as the reflector and sends the light back through the garnet. It probably doesn't show when you see a still photograph or when you see an object just sitting in a display case. But you see these pieces moving with a a strong source of light... And they are astounding. I mean, they sparkle, they sing. So I think that's why. I think the stuff just looks fantastic. It's not just the Saxons who think this. I mean, that golden garnet work like that begins in the late Roman period, and it's known from the Byzantine Empire to Portugal and from North Africa to Scandinavia. It's, It's everybody likes it. And I think what eventually kills it is the fact that there's a gold shortage coming on in the late in the 600s. As far as we can tell, Anglo-Saxons were very much interested in recycling their gold, correct? Yes. I mean, I think everybody's interested in recycling gold. So we have these stories from Beowulf about this massive amounts of treasure. And then up until the Horde, we just had Sutton Hoo, and plenty of people were asking where it was this treasure. So by and large, it was probably just recycled, correct? I think that's that's the likely fate for most of it. The point is that this treasure raises the possibility, is there more out there like this? Um, I mean, that's the joy of archaeology, and that we have no idea. But I think the, the fate of most gold over the centuries has been that it's been melted down to make something else. That's one of the questions we always get asked is, where does the gold come from? What's the source of their gold? And once you appreciate that, it, that most of it's melted and remelted and remelted over the centuries, you realise that, in fact, we're probably never going to know the source of the gold. If you can get gold from the mine, you have a chance because you have the impurities that may typify that particular source. The second you've got gold mixed up with other gold, you're sunk. I mean, you can't do it. We will look, but I hold out very little hope of being able to answer that question. Conversely, what about the garnets? Can we source the garnets? Yeah, the garnets have given us much better scope. There is a team based at the Louvre Museum in Paris. We were lucky enough to be able to take about 60 pieces from the hoard over to Paris, and they did some analysis for us on the gold and analysis of the, particularly of the garnets in the pieces we took over. And the reason we went to Paris for this was that team had been working on golden garnet jewellery from France, from French finds of the Merovingian period, from German finds of the same period, and from material from Belgium. And they'd built up several thousand samples, database, of primarily material from the 500s. And we were very curious to see how the Staffordshire Hoard garnets fitted in with their database, because we're, of course, later on. Basically, what they do in Paris, they have a technique which is called PIXI, which, if I can get this right, is proton-induced X-ray emission. And essentially, they have this most enormous... I mean, it's a 40-metre-long machine that that produces a laser beam of of very high power. And you, you shoot the laser beam at a garnet, and then you read the signals that come off the garnet, and you get a very, very detailed chemical breakdown of the makeup of that garnet without damaging the garnet. So it's astonishing stuff. I mean, just watching it happen is just amazing. I mean, for a non-scientist, it's sort of quite awe-inspiring. 
But what Thomas and his team had found so far was that they had identified five likely sources for the garnets that they'd been working on. And two of those sources were North India, one was Sri Lanka, one was the Czech Republic, and one they thought might be Portugal. The hoard garnets very definitely broke down and matched two of their sources, one of which was a North Indian source and one was the Czech Republic. We all are slightly hesitant about saying it is India, it is the Czech Republic, because garnets are quite common stones. For semi-precious stones, they're one of the commonest there are. So there are other sources around, which I think I think Thomas and his colleagues recognise they, they would like to sample as well, just to see how they compare, to make sure that there, you know, there isn't a hidden source that we're not that hasn't been picked up. But at the moment, the likelihood is running that. Some of the garnets have come from North India and some of the garnets are from the Czech Republic. Garnet actually is a catch-all phrase. It covers a number of specific types of stone. Um, the, the two common ones that seem to be used for this work are almondine and pyrope. And what they'd found for the continental stuff was that on the whole you tended to have either almondine on, a, on an object or pyrope on an object. Now, interestingly, some of the Staffordshire hoard pieces seem to combine the two. I mean, you might have, let's say, a pyrope border with larger almondine pieces in the centre forming the pattern. And that, from some of the work they'd done on one or two other English pieces, might well be a pattern that seems to reproduce in, in other English work of the 7th century. So there's scope there for more work, and I'm, I, mean, I'd, I would love to get back and work with them again, because it was, it was a, a very interesting exercise. Well, one of the things that this does raise, though, and it's something that we talked about recently in the show, we, we, we spoke about Cabri Hill following yep. the withdrawal of Rome. Yep. We have evidence that there was trade that continued there, that mm-hmm. for a while it was occupied and they, they were trading jewelry and things. Yep. So the presence of the garnets does give us a strong indication that even before Offa and his famous tiff with Charlemagne... Charlemagne yeah, short, um, short cloaks. <laughs> yes. uh, there was... A, a, fairly significant trade relationship with the rest of the world mm. and Anglo-Saxon England. Oh, yeah. I mean, Anglo-Saxon England, you have to see as part of a whole North, North Sea culture. I mean, it's, it's clear there's strong connections with Francia in modern-day France, with the Low Countries, with Northern Germany, Scandinavia. I mean, it's, it's not this isolated little bunch of them sort of just hovering, huddling in, in eastern England. I mean, there is a wide-ranging connection going on there. Interestingly, I mean, the Horde shows absolutely no contact with the Celtic Brits. It's, it's, there's nothing there that suggests any kind of, of contact across the inner English border, if I can put it that way. All the connections seem to go the other way, across the North Sea. But now, you know, we're not looking at, at, at a sort of you know, isolated world. I mean, they, they, the, I mean the, obviously, I mean, you know, we're not talking about an English merchant in India buying garnets or an Indian merchant coming to England to sell garnets. You know, they're, they're, they're moving from hand to hand along established trade routes. But if you want to spice your food at this period, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that an Anglo-Saxon king like Pender or a leading warriors would have liked to eat spiced food, that spice, spices for that food are coming from Indonesia, from Java, Sumatra, which is you know even further away from India. And I think the thing to bear in mind is if, if it's small and it's expensive and people are prepared to pay for it, it will travel. You know, it, it's the trade is there. I mean, there's certainly, you know, we do not have really have much gold in this country. I mean, there is some in, in Wales, but I mean, very little. But it doesn't stop them having access to gold for, for jewellery and so on. You know, that, and that's coming in as trade. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the isolation of Celtic Britain with relation to all of this. Do you have any thoughts on why that might have been? It's a tricky one because I don't know that it means isolation in that sense. I mean, Mercia is a very odd place. The Mercians seem to be quite a mixed people. I mean, there's even some suggestions that the name Penda may well be British in origin. So there does seem to be a mixture of peoples around who are going to become the Mercians. And we know that Penda, for example, formed very close alliances with bits of Wales. I mean, you know, they campaigned together against the Northumbrians and so on. So it's not that there's a complete isolation, but certainly the, the cultural mix that's represented in this horde does not show evidence of anything specifically British. Could that indicate that it's potentially not from Mercia, but instead from, say, Northumbria, that that was not as quick to mix with the Welsh? Well, I mean, this is one of the things about what is the hoard we come back to. I mean, if it's loot 
and if it's assembled by Mercians, because we find it here in Mercia, you know, we know the Mercians are fighting the Northumbrians, we know the Mercians are fighting the East Anglians, we know the Mercians are fighting the men of Wessex, as well as fighting the Welsh, of course, because you know, Mercia sacks Rochester, where there's a nice cathedral with plenty of ecclesiastical stuff that you could loot. So this stuff could be coming from almost anywhere, really. I mean, that's one of the other problems with, with interpreting what we get, what we have in the Horde. You know, I mean, it's, it's up till now, a lot of the Golden Garnet work we see would automatically be described as Kentish or North or um, East Anglian, because that's where most of it's been found. Now, you know, we now have more of it in the Midlands. So does that say anything about whether it's typical of the Midlands, or is it all going to be ascribed to being loot from Kent and East Anglia? It, it's so many questions that really we're not going to be able to answer or attempt to answer until we've got further down the research programme. Now, you mentioned that you're a specialist on coins. With this particular find, we don't have any coins to help us date the object, and typically that's the easiest way to date. You take the the most recent coin and say, well, it's about that date. So what methods are we using to date these artifacts? Where we have got parallels for stuff in the hoard, it's looking at what the dating is on those parallels, and that would be by taking material from other sites where we do have dating evidence you know for example where there's carbon 14 dating to to provide independent dates or it's it's relative dating of groups of material so that you can get a handle on you know that's a typical 7th century piece or that's you know known to be from a site or there's there's a comparison to that which is known to a site that's produced a carbon date of 600 and you know so it's it's taking an assembly of evidence like that and then applying it to the known pieces in the hoard and seeing what that's starting to suggest to you so it's it's really it's by comparison with other pieces with the artwork and the craftsmanship and that yeah, sort of it's thing. The, the style of it yeah. the the type of objects um, all the clues that you can bring together like that I mean of course you know in the hoard we have a number of pieces which we've got no parallels for so they're tricky there's stuff that particularly a couple of the silver pommel caps um, look as if they could well have been something like 150 years old by the time the hoard is actually deposited. Which I mean, raises another interesting question. Like, you know, we know that swords could pass from hand to hand and generation to generation. And the, the whole world that um, Tolkien created with Lord of the Rings, you know, with the sword that needed to be reforged and so on, and was the ancestral sword of the kings. It's, you, you always have to remember Tolkien was an Anglo-Saxonist. So he's drawing on the world he knew. So that world is a real one for the 7th century. You may well have had somebody using his great-granddad's sword since the I mean, the particular one, there's a wonderful one with a human face on it. But, I mean, that you could well, for example, you know, give you a lovely scenario, somebody comes over in the 6th century, because that piece is, is, is does seem to be continental German. So that one comes over with somebody settling in the 6th century and is then passed down through the family until whatever happens, happens, and the sword handle gets taken off and gets deposited in the hoard. Things like that really drag this hoard out from merely a piece of antiquity to something that real people used and real people interacted with. And now that the hoard is out of the ground and once again in the public eye, how are people interacting with the hoard and how are you engaging with the public and bringing them into this process? One group we are getting a lot of help from are um, reenactors and craftspeople who are making replicas of uh, Anglo-Saxon kit for reenactors. And this this is really helpful because these these guys actually make and use these things. And there's a world of difference between looking at something and saying, ah, yes, it's an X, and somebody actually using or wearing it as an X and then finding out it doesn't work as an X, it must be a Y. A lot of the small unidentified fragments and so on, they can throw light on it for us. They they can sort of suggest what things might be or, or how things might function. One person I'll give huge credit to is a chap called Dave Roper, who's a craftsman who who makes material for the reenactors market. And Dave has been brilliant in coming and looking at stuff and talking to us about it and looking for the making marks on it and, and the wear marks and suggesting, have you thought about this? I think it's a, it's a very valuable area. It's something I've certainly learned a lot from is talking to these, these guys. 
have they had any insight onto some of the filigree? Because such as the, the famous image of the seahorse or the horse, it's yeah. not clear which it is. It's hard to realize until you see it up close in person how tiny that that is. It's, it's maybe, what, two and a half inches? Oh, less. It's an inch and a bit. Yeah. So but with these, these tiny filigree swirls, can you explain roughly what filigree is and how it's done? Yeah, filigree, It's it's um, in this instance, it's gold wire which can be made in a number of ways, quite interestingly. This is one of the interesting things, watching these modern craftery and actors make gold wire for you. I mean, they're making silver wire, because it's cheaper. Uh, but the, the basic processes are, are right. So you, you can actually start off with a number of different ways of making that wire. But, I mean, the Saxons are getting down to a fifth of a millimetre in diameter with their wire, the finest wire they're using. For most of the filigree in the hoard, you are then taking the two ends of the wire, twisting them in opposite directions, so you set up a sort of series of little beads along that wire, and that, that's the, the, the essence of the filigree. But to then take this wire, and you imagine a fifth of a millimetre diameter wire, which you're then taking and folding into shapes and soldering down on backplates, it's... It, 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 it is astonishing work. I mean, it's, it's when you see it blown up or you see it through a microscope. I mean, it's, you, you are just absolutely blown away by the stuff. It's, it's. I, I'm, well, you can tell. It's, it's three and a bit years on. I'm still in awe of these people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the seahorse is, is is an amazing case in point. We, when we were filming with the television company that was doing the documentaries for the National Geographic Society. I mean, obviously, National Geographic films, they were, they were shown worldwide. So we were thinking, OK, how do you demonstrate how small the species is? And, you know, there's no point putting an English penny beside it because it will mean nothing in, in China. So, and somebody suggested, OK, well, let's use rice. I mean, the world knows long-grain rice. And we put a piece of long-grain rice down beside the, the seahorse. And one grain of long-grain rice was longer than three of the spirals of filigree. And at that stage, you just you suspended disbelief. It's the only way to describe it. And the salutary thing is, how are they doing this? All of us are, as I say, in, in awe of the craftsmanship. But I mean, even the modern craft makers, I mean, are, are struggling to reproduce what the Saxons are doing the first time around. But I suppose you, you you have to bear in mind that your Saxon craftsperson has probably been doing this since he's been knee high to a, to a table leg, and he's he's grown up. I say he, probably he has grown up doing this for 20, 20 years or more with the family. It's something they, they just knew how to do, and it was second nature. We're struggling to reacquire the skills. And that's something that jumped out at me when you, when you say knee-high. It's so small. Is it possible that that work was just done by children with little fingers? It's possible, or, or it's done by people before their eyesight's ruined by doing lots of it. Um, I mean, that, that's one of, the, one of the arguments, is is it... 2020 vision we're seeing here are people as blind as bats um, very short-sighted and they can focus very closely you know some of it you, you could get away with being very very close to it i mean i think if you're starting starting to get a bit more sort of tricky metalworking techniques i, I, I wouldn't quite fancy it myself the, the simple answer is we don't know to the best of my knowledge we have got one set of metalworking tools from anything like a related period from for the saxon period and it's a set of bronze workers tools We've got no workshop for any of this kind of stuff, gold or silver work of this period. So we, we just, you know, any evidence we're having, we have to take from the, the material itself. So do we even know how they made the, the incredibly fine wire? Well, as I say, there are a number of techniques you can use. I mean, you, you can draw the wire through draw plates, which is, is one possibility. One that had never occurred to me until I saw it being done by one of the, these reenactor craftsmen you can actually cut, if you, if you take gold foil, if you cut a strip of it and you then twist it from the two edges, you, you basically make a tube. And if you then get two flat smooth stones and you rub the tube vigorously backwards and forwards, you can actually drive down the diameter that you're getting. And because you're setting up friction, you're actually heating the metal and making it easier to work. And it, and it almost sort of blends itself into a solid wire. But you can still see the scars. And interestingly, on some of the filigree, you can see scarring on some of the filigree beads that suggests that's exactly what you're looking at. So it does look likely as if they're using different techniques for different pieces, which is what you'd expect. I mean, if this stuff... you know, it, it, I don't think there's any question you're looking at one workshop here. You're looking at a number of makers in different places using different techniques. And I think that's what will come through. How do you make stuff? I mean, the gold foils behind the garnets are another case in point. 
I mean, we're fortunate enough here to have some splendid microscopes that will actually enlarge very dramatically, but will also drop scales onto the images. You can look at a blown-up image of some of these foils, you know, and, and there's this beautiful, absolutely vertical lines crossed by absolutely horizontal lines at right angles, incredibly precise pattern. And then you look at the, the scale and you suddenly realise that you've got four lines dropping within a millimetre. <laughs> and, and again, you're thinking, how do you, you know, assuming these are done, these foils are made using engraved dyes, which I think is the likely thing, how do you engrave four lines a millimetre precisely straight parallel to each other and then crossed by precisely straight parallel other lines and this is this is using 7th century technology 7th century toolkits that you've presumably been making yourself on the whole and you're doing it as far as we know without artificial magnification if they aren't using magnification we're not really sure what or how and there's no you know artificial light is a torch or a candle so presumably you're doing it in broad good daylight and probably quite often outside and you put all that lot into play and it becomes even more remarkable. So this find obviously had a serious amount of significance with understanding our, our knowledge of craftsmanship and what they are capable of doing. Does the Horde shed any light on the culture that was developing in Mercy at the time? Obviously this is before Offa, but Offa's on his way. Yep. Uh, does, that t- does it tell us anything? Well, it's one of the, the really interesting things that we, we'll, I think we'll find out whether it'll tell us anything later on as, as the work progresses. I mean, again, I, I, I touched on it earlier. It really depends on what we've got here. I mean, if this is all loot and it's come from other areas of Anglo-Saxon England, then it may not tell us a lot about the material culture of Mercia. If, on the other hand, some of this or all of this is Mercian, then yes, it does tell us a lot. So it's a, tr- it's a tricky one at the moment. What, what we can say is that there is clearly a lot of wealth in Mercia. And I suppose that really shouldn't have come as much of a shock. I mean, if we if Mercia is turning into a major kingdom, and it's, it's, it's clearly a major power in England, you would expect wealth to follow from that. It was one of the surprises with the Horde, was I don't think anybody expected quite the amount of richness that this Horde has demonstrated was around, presumably in some quantity. We had Sutton Hoo, but Sutton Hoo was the one-off find. We thought it was a royal find. There are a number of burials that we knew that had you know, rich goods. Um, they're almost always called princely burials because they had those rich goods. And then suddenly we've got you know over 90 gold or silver sword handles in one bag in, in a field in Staffordshire, which rather suggests that there are more people around with this kind of kit than we had ever really given credit to. If we're looking at trophies taken from four or five major battles... You know, we're looking at 20 people a time. If this is one big battle, we're looking at 90 people who've gone down fighting. Or if it's nothing to do with the battle and it's it's sort of handing back and, and handing out of swords and this is a stash by the Royal Armourer, then that Royal Armourer certainly got a fair stock behind him. I mean, one, one, of the, one of the issues we have is, is, if we're honest and we step back from it, we don't actually know what £11 of gold means in the context of 7th century Mercia. Is it only a king who would have access to £11 of gold? Or is it the kind of thing that some of the leading noblemen might have? You know, What does £11 of gold mean? Is it a vast amount? Is it a reasonable amount? And we, we don't have the context for it. If Sutton, who is Redwald of East Anglia, he seems to be buried with, I think I'm right in saying it was 30, the equivalent of 30 gold coins as, as a purse. Now, you know, if, if we've got 3,000-odd, gold coin equivalent just in the gold in the Staffordshire hoard what conclusion do we draw as I say we don't have the background at the moment to make real sense of that so it, it, I mean this hoard is, is going to leave us with as many questions as we try to answer in the publication okay as always if you'd like some more information on the hoard you can head over to my site thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click on any of the Staffordshire hoard posts and within those posts, you'll find plenty of links to BMAG, the Potteries Museum, and the Staffordshire Horde site itself. Now, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. 
And of course, you can also join us on the forums. We have some fun conversations going on over there. And the forums can be found by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, clicking get involved, and then click forums. All right. Thanks for listening.